Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 19th of February 2018. I'm Joe and with me are Jesse. Hello Joe. And Phelan. Hello Joe. And no Ike for this bit because I don't know, he's ill or something. But we are going to have an interview later on with Todd from Purism. So he will make an appearance there. So before that, let's do a bit of news and bit of plasma news that is actually exciting for once and that is that the 5.12 lts is out and it's actually pretty good by all accounts isn't it failing what do you mean by all accounts of course it's good it's always good <laughs> well hang on a minute what is exciting about this just because it's an lts joe yeah everyone loves an lts right I, I thought that was it like you haven't sort of got a specific kde love that suddenly bloomed or blossomed it's just the fact there's an lts and that's your sort of good go-to stable no, 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 no. Listen, I see. Ah, uh, before he gets in there, I've been listening to him on other podcasts. Secretly, he's starting to fall in love with it, and he just won't admit it. It's uh, he's not feeling the love for his beloved, beloved X Face anymore. <laughs> X Face. The thing is, XFC is is doing exactly what I want it to right now. But as things move to GTK three and possibly even GTK four it may well get left behind and things will start to just not work properly unless XFC can keep up with the development. So I have to keep my eye on what's going on elsewhere. And obviously Marte would be the choice for me. That's just the logical choice, isn't it? Because that's GTK and it's fairly similar to XFCE. But if I'm going to change away from XFCE at some point, then I have to look what else is there. And looking at Plasma, now you've got to the 5.12 release, and it's they've ironed out all of the problems, haven't they? And it's it's really solid. I mean, my main worry is they're going to say, right, well, now this is really good. Now we're going to move to six and make it really shit again and unstable. But looking at this 5.12 release, it is solid, isn't it? Yeah, and even if they go to six, I don't think they're going to do that ever again because they learned from going from three to four that when they went from four to five, that they didn't make that change so abruptly like they had the last time. And they had a lot to change that time anyway. Um, and I know a lot of people weren't always initially keen on five when it first came out anyway, but it's always it's been steady progress all the way with five. I've always been really uh, impressed with five. Even when it first came out, I thought it was a massive improvement over four. Yeah, and I mean, I went to four pretty much when it was out and I suffered through all the way and yeah I mean even still like I I thought it was grand I liked it all the way it was okay um but I mean five has been fantastic I've enjoyed it all the way through but I mean it just keeps getting better and better and a lot of the time it's things that you don't even notice and you may even be using features and initially you don't know and that's why I'm so glad they've been making such a good job of the announcements where they've been putting in the videos they've been putting in pointers about all the little features they've been putting in because some of them are subtle um and they're they're things that you, you might they wouldn't jump out at you initially but they're just they're just nice the way they work uh, you know it's tweaks here and there just very simple things but they actually make a big difference to your flow and how you use them. Like there's been some great work done on things like an application that's playing. Um, if you want to mute the app as it's playing along, you've got that in the task manager now where you can, you can find the app that's hogging the audio card at the time and you can just, you can right click on it and kill it there. Yeah. Like you can with tabs in, in most browsers now. Yeah. It's great. It's nice because especially if there's something blasting away in the background and if you're doing any podcast or something like that, you just want to shut the thing up as quickly as possible. 
um, and a, a feature I've been using quite a bit now. It came so this not, um, announcement was for five point eight to twelve people because that was the last LTS. So some of these features I didn't really find such a big deal. But uh, things like global menus, they've made much easier to jump between. So I didn't notice this as much, but um, there's, you can have effectively what Ubuntu have done, where you can hide a lot of the toolbar across the top into just a drop-down menu, which is great for saving space, because a lot of us have monitors that are wider than they are at all. So it's nice to be able to throw something up there anyway, because you don't really need to see that all the time, but it's nice to be able to get at Funnily enough that we had um, Jonathan Nado on the other day with 5.12, KRunner and Orca are now actually integrated properly together. So we now have proper speech to voice, whatever it's called. Accessibility, let's call it. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes, thank you. Um, so that that's quite good that we have all that there. Um, and we also have a lot of work getting poured into Discover. Um it's not perfect yet. It really isn't. Um, it's been kind of painful. Ike's been showing me his work that he's been doing with KD on Solus. And it's been kind of nice to see a really fast um, app store that works quite well. It's still not quite there yet, but it's getting there. So KD have received a massive donation, haven't they, of $200,000 from the Pineapple Fund, which I note is significantly less than the FSF got from the Pineapple Fund. Hmm. Yes, they thought they were perfect enough and they didn't need any more money. Yeah, and to be fair, that million dollars that the FSF got in Bitcoin is probably going to be worth less than 200 grand before we know it. So this was actual US dollars, so they can actually spend it on stuff rather than speculating and holding the Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's going to be it's going to be great help, especially getting people out to conferences and things like that. It's really cool, especially things like Academy and Randa and things like that. So very, very nice, whoever these mystery people are. Um, all right, well, let's talk about elementary OS. And this actually broke while we were recording last time. So it's kind of old news at this point, but I think we should talk about it anyway. So in the next version of Elementary OS, which I think is Juno, which is going to be based on Ubuntu 18.04, so it's probably going to drop, uh, my guess would be early May, but we'll have to see. They are going to make a change to the way updates work in the App Center. So in App Center, you can buy applications, or well, rather I should say developers can sell applications for name your own price. And that price can be zero. And so if you buy an application for zero dollars or get it for free, then when there are updates available for it, it's going to nag you to put in a price again, whether that's zero or actually pay for it. So it's essentially going to nag you until you pay for it. That's quite a negative way to look at it. Uh, I've, I've kind of thought quite a lot about it and I can see the pluses and minuses here. And I've also spoken quite a lot about it on uh, LAN. So what do you two think? Jesse, what do you think? Good idea or bad idea? Good idea. All right. Why is that? <laughs> All right. Oh, you have to explain ourselves in this, don't we? Um, so I, I think they're basically tr dipping their toes in the water, trying to see what they can do to sort of change people's view on how you get applications on Linux. And, you know, I am of the opinion that Linux has lots and lots of free apps and I can always find a free app, that's great. But those people who have written those apps do need, you know, uh, money for the time they've put into it and need 
put food on the table, those sorts of good things. And so if apps are very good and use them all the time, there's no reason you shouldn't be in a position to be able to pay for them. Now, I think they have heard the feedback from uh, the people that use their applications and one of the, sorry, that were, that were paying for applications or not paying more critically. And one of the sort of bits of feedback they got a lot of was that, well, I didn't want to pay, you know, $5 up front and then find out it was shit. So I didn't pay anything. But then once you've made that decision, you then can't pay a month down the line or a year down the line if you've been using it all the time. So this does, um, you know, address that. And it does it in a way which is a little bit naggy, but isn't like on top of you nagging. And and every time you load the app, there's no pop up or whatever. It, It just says, you know, in two months time, if there's an update, please put zero again, if you choose that, if not, you know, pay and you'll never get that again. I, I think it's the right level of trying to get some money. And, and I know that there's a way of looking at it that it's, it's annoying and what have you, but I think the world of Linux has a lot of people who don't pay for a lot of stuff, myself included, I hold my hands up. But if, if we want this to be like a professional ecosystem, that sort of mentality does have to change a bit. Yeah, and to be fair, we're not talking about OS updates or security updates. We're talking about feature updates for apps that developers are trying to sell. Yeah, absolutely. So you're not any worse off from a security point of view. Um, it would be annoying if someone updated an app, you know, every week and this was bugging you that much. But I guess, you know, these things are coming out every couple of months, every six months or so. It's not like it's in your face all the time. You can use the app you know, without any bother if, if you haven't paid for it. So it, it I feel that they have found a clever way of trying to remind people to pay without it being too in your face that it becomes a real bugbear. So let's see what Phelan has to say. Yeah, I'm not as rosy about this, maybe. Like, I think they're obviously getting funded by fans of their software because I can't see anybody is paying... legitimately what is it 200 quid for something that is a color picker i'm being realistic here who's paying that money for a color picker right i know what you're talking about this is harvey the app for for checking um contrast on on web pages and i agree i agree i think if you're complaining that people aren't paying for your apps and your apps seem to be something that took half a day to knock up i'm not sure how long it took but you know like it doesn't look like it's not like we're talking about um gimp here we're talking about something that has some colors and a color prick or what have you and i think that undermines his argument and and okay i mean sequel or fair enough that might be a bit harder to have put together but to be quite honest it's not like there's no other sequel tools out there and it's not like there's no other torrent apps out there i mean i know they're trying to give the integrated look of their own desktop out there but how much are they contributing back to say ubuntu that they're based on like i have no problem paying for software and i do because i contribute money to kde um and i would have no problem donating money to um ubuntu if ubuntu allowed me to donate money to which i'm not sure they do allow direct donations anymore do they Uh, i think they do but i think it goes into the community fund that pays for like events and stuff and you know what i have no problem with that if if i could make a donation to that and i'll actually look at that again because i used to they have that download slider where when you pick the iso you can choose how much goes to what different part whether it be you know the core development or what was um unity or these sorts of things so you could choose where your money went and one of those options was community 
I will actually look for that because I'd happily make a donation to that. But, you know, maybe from my view, I don't see value maybe in the apps that they're doing, but I see the point that they're doing. But I just don't see value in the apps that they're complaining about right now. I, I can see the point that they're trying to do, though, that, yes, maybe we need to change the mindset that effort goes into these apps but i just feel that it was diluted by the fact that the apps that they complained that people weren't paying for weren't particularly strong well the phrase that springs to mind and listening to the discussion on bad voltage kind of uh, brought this to the forefront of my mind is pissing in the wind because they've made what 1700 dollars over months and months and months and it just is not enough to make it worthwhile i know that daniel tries to spin it saying that uh, the, well, the expectation was zero before and now it's a non-zero amount and we can't forget that but at what point do you just give up with this trying to monetize fast in new ways we have a very clear revenue model for monetizing fast and that is what red hat are doing support and services not actually selling the software itself and we've seen it with the ubuntu store that just didn't do anything and we've seen it with CyanogenMod trying to sell themes and stuff and that didn't make them any money i just think that do what red hat are doing <laughs> they're doing really well like that's what canonical are doing aren't they that that's they're following that business model and that's why they're slowly turning to profitability and they they're cutting resources to things like desktop albeit not completely because they do make some money from that but they're concentrating on areas that actually make money and i just think that desktop linux is is a niche within a niche at this point as fewer and fewer people even use desktop machines apart from it professionals and designers everyone else is just using the windows pc like you are jesse and i just can't see any sort of long-term viability of making money from the linux desktop and and that's a depressing thought and i really hope i'm wrong but as far as i can see that is the, the truth of the matter yeah so I'm, I'm gonna ask a question about that but what first what windows pc don't you use windows pcs at work oh at work all right yeah fine yeah yeah that's what i'm talking about yeah obviously at home you use linux but all of the people that you know who have office jobs are using Windows, like apart from some specific use cases where it's Max and the odd person who's a developer or a sysadmin or something like you, Phelim, who can choose your own machine and therefore run KDE Neon. But most normal people who work in offices use Windows at work and a phone or iPad at home. Yeah, so that's that's right. So I did wonder where that came from. Um, but I, I guess the 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 rebuttal I have about that is that you're basically saying give up on Linux desktop and, you know, no one needs to make any apps for it. It'll all just die to one side. The way to make money is to go after enterprise, do Red Hat, be a server type um, distribution, be on AWS like Ubuntu is. And that's the only way to make money. And the problem is that message or that sort of plan doesn't work for the people who are enthusiastic about desktop Linux, you know, it's a shame Ike is not on here as someone who has, you know, put his uh, his life onto that onto that path. But you know, the guys at elementary are also in that boat, and they also think that they can try and uh, get money out of it, or not get money, but you know, make it a a sustainable future. And it, I don't know, it just sounds a bit 
defeat isn't quite the right word, but you know, if if the only way to make money is to be an enterprise, then we might as well give up having desktop Linux as as, as a as a home user. Well, not necessarily, because if you think about the enterprise, yes, there's a lot of servers and stuff, but Red Hat is deployed on thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of desktop machines that are used in enterprise. And there's no reason why you, you can't have an open source version of that, like CentOS. You could run CentOS on a desktop if you really wanted to at home. And so, you know, that's that's the thing with Ubuntu, isn't it? That they sell Dell machines and stuff. And so that's why they have to put resources into the desktop. And then the rest of us benefit as a result of that. But when you look at boutique distros, Yes, they're going to have a following and people will donate to them. But a point Jono made on Bad Voltage, to go back to that, was that of all the people who have bought the software from that store, uh, the App Center in Elementary OS, how many of them were doing it to support the whole project and how many of them were doing it because they actually felt there was value in the applications they were buying? There's no way to know that, but I suspect that Jono was right that very few of them yeah, but I I guess the point I should have made was I'm talking about home user desktop environments, not work user, because the work user just needs you know a financing financing software, calculator, um, office suite, whatever it might be, and a web browser. Whereas the home user wants a music player and Netflix to work and you know VLC and whatever else that you'd have as a home user. And I suppose I view what they're doing not that the the elementary are making money for their apps. That just happens to be where this discussion is because that's elementary the first people to have done it. But I would hope that this moves over to uh, Discover on KDE and the App Store on GNOME. And if you could pay for the everyday apps that you download when you install a machine, you know, if there was a revenue model for me to pay for um, Mumble that we're talking on now and for me to pay on Audacity that we're recording on now without me having to go to their site and sign up and pay and credit cards or PayPal or whatever, it's just there. Uh, You know what? I install this every bloody time I put a computer on. There you go, Mumble, there's £5. That's £5 that um, group of people, those developers wouldn't have got had that option not been available to me in an app store. And I'm not saying that you know, necessarily, I think part of our argument is that it's not going well on, uh, was not making a lot of money on elementary, but that's, to me, sort of beside the point. I think if you look at the the bigger picture of what you could do, all the applications that run on a home desktop environment could make more money if the big app stores allow you to pay for absolutely everything, or at least the people who sign up to, to get money. You know, maybe... Um, Critter would make loads of money because suddenly there's an easy way of of paying money for it, or or, or have you, or you know, um, it says trying to think of random apps, but you, you get the point there. It, it's more about these are home user desktop applications, and they're not getting good funding. But if there was an easy button, you may well fund it. Yeah, but here's the question though: maybe that's not necessarily the best way to do things, though, either, because. Just funding apps for the sake of funding apps might not be the right way. Whereas if you have a dedicated, proper funding goal for a project, you sometimes get better results. Like a lot of projects have a dedicated project where almost like a crowdfunder for a particular thing that they're going to do, they fund for it, have a drive, get the project done. Like Krita has actually done a few times where they will say, this year we need to do this, this and this. They have their funding drive to get the money and then they go do that work. 
like a proper project, how you would fund any sort of building project almost. Um, and I wonder if it delivers a better thing than just randomly paying money into a pit that maybe doesn't get used as efficiently. I don't know. Because, I mean, if you think about it, KDE has existed the longest of all the desktop environments, and it's kind of done okay up till now. I'm not saying it's perfect, but maybe it is actually doing all right in this model. Yeah, well, it is pretty cool with a K, isn't it? Um, <laughs> all right, well, we spent too long on that. Let's talk about Ubuntu and another controversy that happened over the last couple of weeks, and that is that they want to collect user metrics. See, you've introduced this as controversy. And I think that's I think that's already clickbaity. Because I was surprised <laughs> I was surprised they weren't doing this already. I was like, oh, you you only just decided that it would be a good idea to have some very basic information about the PCs that your software, uh, your operating systems are getting installed on. It seems like a sort of normal thing. Like when I put a an auto bug report in, I just sort of assume it collects all that data so that they can work out what the problem was. So if you're reporting crashes and things, I just sort of thought this was happening anyway. So I'm I'm not really fussed about this. Yeah, so this is Will Cook anyway, who has suggested on the mailing list that they include a checkbox on the Ubiquiti installer that essentially says it's okay to collect some data about my system. It will be anonymized, sent over HTTPS, and then collated and published in a statistical form that is totally anonymous. And that checkbox will be on by default. And that, I think, is what has pissed a lot of people off here because if it was off by default, and most people are used to that Windows next, next, next uh, way of doing things, people just accept defaults, generally speaking. If it was off by default, then I don't think we'd even be talking about this or it would have been a side note. But the fact that it's on by default, I think that is the crux of this. Um so I don't know, Phelan, what What's your thoughts on it? Jesse's uh, characteristically positive. Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I'm kind of all right with it. I mean, given that every other operating system does this and worse by default, I think it's only fair that we should at least offer some of this data to the open source community. I mean, it's, it's only somewhat fair, surely, that we should at least donate some of this data to them. I mean, they're about this point the only ones who don't have this information. So, I mean... <laughs> I'm all right with that. <laughs> I because I actually would be very happy to send this data up to various things. Like I know Ike is very keen not to have any personal data, and I saw in a lot of the chats people were like, "I'll happily take this data if you want me to anonymously donate this info to help the project." And I'd be pretty much the same myself. Uh, any project that needs any of this info to help in a sort of reporting tool, I'd be okay with that. I mean, I suppose if the checkbox is set and it's kind of trying to trick you to send the data, I suppose you could take that as a bit of a slightly dubious way of doing it, but there's nothing really exciting there. Um, all right, but you, you as someone who knows a bit about system architecture and stuff like that, you tell me, could you design this uh, with help from others, but do you think this could be designed to be totally perfect? The the collection, sending, receiving, and processing of this data, could you design a system to do that in uh, a month or so? Because you're going to have feature freeze very soon, so they need to get this in very, very quickly. And you know, it, it's now um, 
late February. It's coming out in late April because we're talking about this being in 1804. This isn't some abstract point in the future. This is 1804, a couple of months' time that they're going to be doing this. Do you think that you could personally oversee the design of that or or maybe someone who's cleverer than you? <laughs> I'm pretty sure to have this already, to be honest. I'm pretty sure to have, like, if they don't have this exact thing, I'm pretty sure to have, like, 99.9% the bones of this already and they just need to change a couple of text boxes around as to what they actually need. But all of the data that they have for this already, I mean, they've got that already in all the tools they'd have for the bug report and stuff. So... I imagine it's just a an XML file or God knows what, the, or JSON or whatever, and they just want to change the fields that they want and all the upload stuff on the server side they'd have for the bug report tool and things. So I think there's very little to it. I think it's just a case of they need a form and, a, and the checkbox and then that's it. So I'd imagine it's very, very simple. Fair enough. Well, maybe it's just a storm in a teacup, this then. Maybe maybe they, all they need to do is to, to make it simple, is just put a box, like a, a force button that pops up, you know, like the you're about to wipe your disk, you must click yes or you must click no, and they just say, do you want to submit this data, yes or no? That'd be a simple way. It'd be a hard button. You would have to physically make the choice to continue. And then rather than a, a checkbox in a click-through window, it's a question that you have to actually answer on the screen yeah that's not a bad idea making it so that yeah it's the continue button's grayed out or something until you actually make a choice either way yeah yeah and that's a good idea yeah well hopefully someone from canonical is listening and they'll implement I, that feature i want my 25 percent. yeah okay yeah and i, I want my uh 10 obvious 25 percent, please yeah of nothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, well, on to a bit of admin then. Um, thank you, everyone, for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. Patreon dipped a bit last time after I dissed them and said that they were withholding our funds. And immediately after we finished recording, they fixed that and uh, we got the money out. So that's all well and good. So, yeah, uh, sorry about that. It turns out that if your email address is too long, then it doesn't display properly. And it was displaying as .co rather than .com. And I was worried that that money was just going to disappear into the void if I... Uh, said yes export that money so yes do uh, do support us on patreon and i've got ideas i had an idea but i'm not going to talk about it now but i had an idea of how to uh, make patreon more valuable to some people so do get on there and if you want to join people there's not just patreon there's other ways go to latenightlinux.com slash support um, and yeah thank you everyone for that and if you want to get in contact latenightlinux.com slash contact and there's email address and stuff like that there and telegram group of course that's where we hang out most of the time. So uh, I talked about Foss Talk Live last time, and now tickets are available for that. Yay. It's not like I did that late last night after promising failing to do that a week ago or anything. So, yeah, that is the 9th of June, Saturday the 9th of June in London in King's Cross. It's a bunch of live podcasts. A bunch of podcasts have now said that they are definitely coming back for another season. Shock horror after their curry. It really is just an excuse to it, Curry, isn't it? That um, we will be there. I think the three of us, hopefully, will be there, depending on certain things that will happen. But I'm sure that'll be fine. Uh, some of Linux Voice, at least Graham, if they're indeed called Linux Voice, still haven't heard anything from them two weeks later with regards their podcast. But Graham said he's coming, so uh, we'll see. Graham's techno marvel, otherwise him and a keyboard extravaganza. Yeah, loads of cool synth noises or something. Um, 
And also there's going to be Stuart Langridge from Bad Voltage, Dave Megaslippers from uh, Geek News Radio. I don't know what's funny about Megaslippers. It's just a name. Um, and Marius Quarbeck, who used to do the Ubuntu Fun podcast, but now he does Nerd Zoom, which is in German, but don't worry, he'll be speaking English. So it's going to be a good event anyway. Um, do come. It's free to get a ticket, but uh, there are limited tickets available. And that means that people who have a ticket will be prioritized when it comes to coming in. It's basically always worked out that we sell a certain, well, I say sell, we give away a certain number of tickets and then just the perfect number of people turn up. So hopefully that will happen again. Hopefully it won't be too heaving or empty. But I don't think empty is a possibility in a room that small, <laughs> quite frankly. But it's going to be a good night anyway. So, uh, yeah, come, drink, have good fun and get a ticket now. Uh, link will be in the show notes it's too complicated uh just go to fosstalk.com and you'll see uh you can get a ticket from the embedded thing there okay so this episode of late night linux is sponsored by entroware entroware.com they are a dedicated linux computer seller based here in the uk and they ship computers with ubuntu and ubuntu mate 1604 and 1710 won't be long before 1804 as well and they sell all kinds of laptops and a couple of desktops and a couple of servers and the laptops range from fairly affordable stuff that's kind of you know your email browsing machines all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest nvidia graphics cards that are ideal for graphic design and 3d art video editing machine learning that sort of thing and they're a company who actually care about linux this is all they do they just sell machines with linux it's not a side project for them they make sure that all the firmware is working all right and your fan's not going to be spinning like crazy and all that sort of thing. They really do go the extra mile for you. And most things are configurable as well, amounts of RAM, storage, CPU types on most of their machines, so you can really get something to suit your budget. And they ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's an option at checkout, put in Late Night Linux, and they'll know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Okay, so I mentioned it earlier, an interview with Todd from Purism, so let's listen to that now. We're now joined by Todd Weaver, who is the CEO and founder of Purism. So welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. So there's a lot going on with Purism in the news at the moment. You did the successful crowdfunder not long ago for the Librem 5 phone, so I suppose that's the, the best place to start. So I suppose, first of all, congratulations. You smashed through your um, target, didn't you? Yes, of course, and it's uh, was very exciting. Um, one of the things that's kind of interesting about crowdfunding is um, the way it comes in waves, right? So you have the initial uh, sort of boost from the core audience uh, who've you know been following the brand, uh, and then you need to continue to market, uh, you know, form partnerships and spread so you can you know sort of see uh, as it progresses, and then it sort of reaches this next stage, which is um, as you cross or get close to crossing the actual funding goal and then it sort of takes the takes on a, a life of its own uh, to you know to blow past it as you're getting close to that uh, that end time and so we it was pretty much textbook uh, across all those pieces uh, which was excellent to see well you say that but um, there's someone I know uh, Alan Pope who uh, he kind of I mean he's very secretive about exactly how he does it but I'm fairly sure it's just with curl and stuff like that but he uh, plotted a graph of your um, how how you did with the the crowdfunding, and it was extremely straight that line. It was very much a linear 
um, well, line, which seemed a bit unusual because if you look at most crowdfunders, uh, it tends to be, as you say, like a, a big jump at the beginning and then it kind of levels off and then towards the end it goes up. But it seemed to be quite straight of a line. Is Do you think that's because of your excellent marketing and managing to stay in the news for the entire time? Yes, that's exactly it. Um, is that we knew that we had partnerships that we were working on uh, and we had some of them already uh, in place. Um, and what we wanted to do was make sure that we could stagger those, right? So rather than coming out with this, you know, three partnerships all in the beginning, that we would be able to continue the kind of constant drumbeat and make sure that we were trying to stay on that linear line. Because if we were, you know, even 20% under the linear line, would would we would know that we were going to succeed in the campaign. So seeing the trend line be almost, uh, you know, just a little under um, for, you know, the first half of it or so, uh, we knew that we were going to be able to get there, especially with the, the announcements that we had in the queue. Okay, and towards the end, there were a couple of big injections I don't suppose you can really talk much about that, but presumably it must have been a company or an individual who wanted to, uh, well, wanted it to succeed. Yeah, it's uh, enterprise sales. So an area that we sort of this goes back to the bigger topic of uh, of Purism's business model, which was to start and form a strong beachhead in the business to consumer. Right? These are security experts, software developers, people who you know understand the problem that we're solving, and then be able to expand that audience to enterprise sales. Right? The B two B side, because they of course want to see uh, established company right shipping product. They can order the product, pull it from inventory. <clears throat> but even in that case, uh, it was enterprise a few enterprise sales that came in that we were talking with behind the scenes. And once they said, you know, if the, if the campaign reaches a certain goal, then we'll, you know, we'll come in because then we'll know we'll get the actual phone. So uh, part of that was also uh, discussed during the campaign. We didn't know ahead of time that that was going to happen. It was during the campaign that these inbound sales came in. Okay. And I suppose we should have explained what the Labrum 5 is exactly. It is a completely free software phone well a phone that will run completely free software isn't it down to even the what would normally be the blobs that run the hardware yes that's right so the Librem 5 is really uh, because the in the cell phone market it's a duopoly everything's either android and completely blobbed up or it's uh, an ios phone and so what we wanted to do was not just you know solve the problem of let's say putting some piece of software in android like literally everybody else tries to do. Uh, what we wanted to do was, uh, because we manufacture hardware, that we knew we can solve the problem of the hardware issues that relate to the software problems, and then be able to advance the software into a means that we can have a free software foundation endorsed, respects your freedom even, certified uh, hardware device, and then running that with uh, PureOS, which is a free software endorsed distribution. So that means that it's completely deblobbed, separate baseband from CPU, and has a really strong security story, as well as freedom story, ethical story, and privacy story. Now, not to ask you to give away the enterprise customers that came at the end, but are they companies who already are open source oriented, or are they looking at it more from the security standpoint? The bulk of our enterprise sales, this goes for the laptop and it also the same ratio carries over to the campaign, uh, is that they are currently 
aware of the security advantages of the overall free software. Um, and they use either you know something, some GNU Linux-based distribution. Then we have a smaller percentage who care about security. And then they're addressing um, certain security elements where they're looking to abandon Android or, in the laptop space, abandon uh, Windows uh, systems. But that's a smaller percentage. If I were to pick, I'd probably say that's about 75 to 80% of the core audience, meaning they're already educated in in what the GNU Linux world is. And then about uh, you know 20 to 25% of our enterprise sales, or in this case, even uh, phone enterprise sales, uh, was uh, around the security story and the depth of credibility that uh, that we carry. So I know that you're very keen to get GNU slash Linux running on it, kind of proper Linux, for want of a better word. But given your very tight margins here, I mean, I know you've got $2.3 million in, but by the time you've delivered 3,000 phones, you know, manufactured uh, them and, and actually sent them out all over the world, there's not that much money left for development. It, it seems strange to me that although you talk about pure OS, um, it, you've got to do an awful lot of development on that to make it actually work as a touch-based phone um, interface, not to mention all the applications that are going to have to be developed for it as well. And it, it makes me wonder, why didn't you go for something, well, just take the Android Open Source project, for example, make it work without any blobs, and hey, presto, you've got a free phone with a fully functional operating system with um, quite a lot of apps with F-Droid or similar, um, you know, why do you need to go and develop something completely new for this? That's a great question. Uh, it comes down to short-term versus long-term goals. <clears throat> so the short-term, um, and we, I'll take that same sort of analogy or question you have and and apply that to like the ridiculous extreme right which is why don't you just use android <laughs> it's like well obviously that doesn't reach our long-term goals uh, and then we can increment our way to what we consider the long-term goal so the long-term goal of what we're actually trying to accomplish is uh, solve the problem of GNU Linux running on a phone where we can leverage a pure os which is doesn't have any uh, non-free software whatsoever and create that future, right? So um, I'm actually looking to impact the far future of computing and making sure that we can increment our way there. So with the funding that we have allows us to lay the foundation. Now, the phone we're going to ship in January 2019 is not going to have, uh, you know, 10,000 applications or, you know, greater, but it's going to have the core functionality so that you can make a phone call, text message, browse the web, do the, the main things that you need. Um, and then because we have a platform that allows for the creation of an ethical device as it continues to expand, uh, and then we're developing or delivering development kits with documentation of how to write applications and, you know, and have those, uh, included in pure OS, which of course <clears throat> means it's included in Debian, uh, and then all of Debian derivatives. Uh, then we have, uh, actually changed the future for the better. And uh, that's something that was our original plan and something that we're uh, executing on. Uh, we're, I mean, it's surprising uh, how rapidly the development is, is uh, progressing. It took us a little bit of time to bring in all the team uh, because the campaign ended at the end of the year. We had to interview over 100 candidates, narrow that down to about 12 hires, and then bring them on 
with the holidays, that sort of you know pushed it to where basically we're going to start up at, at the 1st of January. And so by the 15th or so of January, we kind of had all the team in place, tools in place, hardware in their hands, and everything could advance at that point. And now it's at an uh, unbelievable pace. Uh, I mean, the team is cranking. And so what we decided to do is put out weekly updates, um, and it sort of will toggle. Uh, it'll be the uh, sort of what we're tunneling from the low-level hardware OS side one week. And then the next week, we're going to put out an announcement on the what we're tunneling from the other side, which is the uh, UI, UX development. And that's both on the Plasma Mobile as well as the GNOME GTK side. So I have a question about how that interacts with what you were saying previously. Now, you're going to have Plasma versions and you're going to have GNOME versions. So if someone's to get a phone and they're going to start developing apps for it. This is back to the core problem we already have with desktop Linux. What do I target? So what SDK can they expect to actually be there? What toolkits can they expect to use? What what guarantees of ABI compatibility do they have over time? Like, are these problems that you've already solved? Uh, not entirely. Uh, however, by the time our development kits arrive in the developer's hands, that that will be solved. So right now we have uh, uh, we're currently testing the uh, what we call write once skin twice and also uh, write once uh, run across the GTK and Qt. So we know that of course Qt applications can run in GTK, right? And GTK can applications can run in Qt. So that's not the problem, right? The problem is uh, making sure that they follow the same human interface guidelines. And so with, uh, since we're advancing GTK, because we believe in what GNOME stands for, and we want to make sure that it's not pigeonholed to just Plasma Mobile, and we have a partnership with both, that we're uh, working with both. Now, both communities are at different stages, right? So our communication with Plasma Mobile is really more testing and seeing what applications are missing and how can we cross-compile an application and how can we modify the design, the UI UX, to conform to our human interface guidelines. Uh, and of course we can because it, you know, it's free software and we can skin it and they're cooperating to make sure that we can conform. And then on the GNOME GTK side, that there's um, more development needed because we need to advance it from you know GNOME Mobile of, of yore that was really in a not so great state into what we can deliver. So in that case, if we then what we're going to have is uh, developer documentation as well as the development kits that allow for the worst case would be uh, have to write an application twice, which we're looking to avoid. And we already have tests in place, which I think we're going to be announcing in the next couple of weeks about a write once skin twice approach. And then our goal would be a write run once run uh, both places, especially because the phone can run and most applications will run full screen. And what we're talking about is desktop uh, uh, environment uh, UI differences. So that's the approach that we're taking. And so far, everything that we've been testing and advancing seems like we'll at, at least be able to get to the write once, skin twice approach. Uh, and it's also likely that we'll be able to get to that write once, run everywhere. 
Now, far be it for me to tell you how to run your business, so don't take this the wrong way, but if I was in your position, I would not be hedging my bets on two completely different interfaces. I would just pick one and stick with it and throw all the resources that I had available to me at that one, and that would obviously be Plasma Mobile. Now, I know that PureOS on your laptop and desktop machines is based on GNOME, And I know that you've talked about convergence of applications across those, but surely it makes sense for the first phone to just throw all your resources at one of them, the one that is more advanced, Plasma Mobile, and make that as good as it possibly can be rather than splitting the resources across the two of the um, interfaces that you are going to. Not to mention the fact that there, there there was a tweet, at least, hinting at a possible... Uh, Ubuntu Touch Ubi ports being available on it. I mean, it, it just seems like, well, dare I say, it, a lack of focus. Sure, that I can respect that um, because a, a key piece um, that I pride myself on is making sure that uh, we can uh, focus and deliver. So, uh, in response to a couple of those things you brought up, the first is if we picked one, it would be GNOME. So we wouldn't be picking Plasma Mobile because we want a future that we have a unified approach across our laptops and uh, tablets and mobile devices. And that future from everything that we've planned is uh, based off of a GNOME future. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that uh, Plasma Mobile is far along from an eye candy standpoint, but not necessarily uh, from a completed phone standpoint. So the evaluation of that made it where we looked to say, hey, you know what, we can partner with the KDE community and support them, right, providing hardware and making sure that uh, everything that we do on the low level, meaning suspending the uh, CPU, but you can still receive an inbound call, that's shared across GNOME and KDE, right? So of our development team, 95% is going to be able to support any desktop environment. It's irrelevant, right? We're talking about power management issues, uh, being able to uh, make a phone call, right? Those things are going to be shared. So then what you're talking about is around the 5% difference. And so what we're doing there is working with the KDE Plasma community, providing development kits and supporting them. Uh, and then also, if there's something that they want an application, we discussed with them about, you know, maybe they want a clock application. And so as we write a clock application, especially if we have a write once run everywhere, then it's a great focus and goal. If it turns into a write twice, then your argument uh, holds a lot of water, right? So the, and then about UB ports, um, or any other addition is that those are cases where we are providing hardware and offering the support needed to get that running, right? We're not actually actively investing in the development of anything besides the KDE and GNOME partnership, which again is at the desktop environment level. And for a phone running everything full screen, that's uh, not as significant as, let's say, the desktop wars of all of your. So you might use the word facilitate then, the likes of UbiPorts. Yeah, that's a great word. So the difference is that we would provide them hardware 
And if they have a request of saying, hey, the power management aspect of isn't working, is that you or us? And we'd look at the code and, you know, and, and, and evaluate that because, of course, we want to make sure that it can work. So it is definitely a facilitating any partnership from any of the other providers of OSs, right, be that replicant to lineage, et cetera, would be that they want to have their operating system running on our hardware. And so then we would, of course, uh, support that because it broadens the overall uh, audience. But our actual investment is in the hardware enablement, right, which is, which is needed for all of them. And have you heard anything from Replicant or Lineage then yet? Uh, well, we certainly know Paul from Replicant uh, very well. Um, and actually, we're working with uh, him on an embedded controller project that we're sponsoring. Um, but as far as Lineage, we've discussed with Lineage, but I don't really um, think that that's progressed beyond kind of just initial uh, interest uh, from at least from our side of, you know, hey, we'd like to include it kind of approach. Uh, and then UB ports, we've been in uh, more regular communication with. Well, could it be that the lineage folks are waiting for final hardware specs? Because you don't even have access to the, the final system on a chip yet, do you? That, or at least that was my understanding. You're, you're doing this testing on the earlier version of it. Yes, correct. So any partnership with Lineage or Copperhead OS or you know any of those uh, ones that are out there, Replicant, etc. Um, it would be premature, right? It'd be great to say, hey, we're involved and we're going to work together. I mean, that's great. But premature from a standpoint of providing them much that would help them right now. So on the Plasma mobile side, it's a little different, right? We have uh, hardware that, and, and our developers have a near uh, identical stack and we can just run Plasma mobile from our Debian build. So yes, the future partnerships with any of those and our real involvement are going to be after we have development kits to ship. So shipping them an IMX6 quad plus board that we're testing on now is not going to really move the needle until we can get that IMX8 dev kit. So you're exactly right. And when are you expecting to get those? Well, we have uh, eval boards that we just placed an order for. So we actually should get those um, possibly by the end of this month. And that's going to be the IMX8M board. That would be the production chip that we would be using in our actual fabrication. So these are not our dev kits. These are evaluation boards from NXP. And then we uh, take those designs to our design house and begin uh, the hardware layout and, uh, and the overall process of what we're looking to put together from the motherboard. And so when will we get a final specification, screen size, RAM storage, that sort of thing? Well, we know the screen size, because we've been testing that already, it's a 5.5-inch uh, OLED screen. Because it was 5 uh, on, the, on the crowdfunder originally, wasn't it? No, it, we've always targeted, well, we called it the Librem 5, because we just sort of round to the nearest or the lowest inch, I suppose. Uh, but we were sort of targeting 5.5 inch. Um, and I think the original campaign page, even when we launched it, we said, uh, we might have said 5 inch in there, but we definitely also mentioned that we we're going to target the 5.5 inch. And so in testing the screens, we're very, very happy with a 5.5 inch OLED screen that we uh, have in our hands right now. Okay, well, my phone is a 5.5, so that would make sense to me. I know there are some people who were very 
excited by the fact that it was only a five inch because that's increasingly rare these days and people don't want giant phones or at least some people don't but if you look at the market it would suggest otherwise so i think it's a good idea to be 5.5 yeah it was less about market and research and more about product availability um you know so uh one of the early lessons we learned is that we on a lot of the hardware from the supply chain standpoint, we want to make sure that there's redundancy. Uh, and so, you know, picking a screen size that has some good supply chain redundancy allows us to uh, move off of one supplier into another if need be. Um, so the areas of uniqueness for us are, of course, the motherboard, since it just does not going to exist anywhere outside of us. And that's already a, a significant differentiator, right? So we don't need to differentiate across screen size and, and, uh, you know, a, a battery capacity, et cetera. So we're going to look at what is available that uh, adheres to our uh, strict standards across privacy, security, and user freedom. And so I suppose we should, uh, before we wrap it up, talk about uh, what's going on with your laptops and things. Is there anything, any news there, any exciting developments with um, making them run completely free software? There's an awful lot of great things that are happening. Um, As far as uh, specifically related to your question, we are um, continuing to reverse engineer the FSP binary and, and actually have a blog post that's probably going to be published uh, this week um, about more advancements there. And then we also have um, some fantastic news coming out in the next couple of weeks about a tamper-resistant approach that we have with combining uh, our original partnership with Trammell Hudson on heads. So we have TPM hardware in all of our laptops, and we have Core Boot, of course, running on all of our laptops. And we have been evaluating and really hardening the overall heads inclusion, which allows for a tamper-resistant laptop. So that's that's all of our hardware today can support this. But what we're going to be releasing, of course, is the way in which we can build heads into the Core Boot. And so that way, the overall user flow from a tamper-resistant standpoint is you sign a YubiKey or a Nitro key, and then you have a measured known good state of however much of the laptop you've measured. And then uh, any change to a single bit from the very first bit loaded to the CPU will uh, alert the user uh, based off of the Nitro key or YubiKey measurement, and um, or excuse me, based off the TPM measurement, and then alert the user. So the only, and then when you do a software update, you insert your YubiKey, update the software, and sign it as a known good state again. And then any bit change would be uh, alerted, right? So that's this tamper uh, evident approach to laptops, and that kind of sort of paves the way, right? So this is really exciting because IT departments, you know, enterprise sales, or or even you know, security expert, somebody who's concerned about their privacy, can can leverage this as a tamper evident of the device because they control the keys, right? And that's a huge change from how the way in which the industry had been going previously, which is, you know, the large corporation behind it, either Intel or Microsoft, can control the keys. And this puts the keys in the hands of the uh, the user or the department that controls the uh, devices. So that's going to be coming out as well in the next couple of weeks. You decided to make me... Uh, just <laughs> discuss that first here on this call. So, uh, anyway, it's, it's very exciting. All right, excellent. We've had a lot of attempts over the years for you know bringing Linux or GNU Linux. I will say Linux 
across two phones and try and make fully free devices. So please do it because <laughs> I, I can't be disappointed again. <laughs> Don't let me down. Not on Valentine's Day. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I've actually heard that a lot. And it's, you know, there's there's a lot of moving parts. Um, but we, you know, clearly have executed and shown that we care about the things that the most caring people care about. And so the most strict individuals, right, we, we have on staff, right? So this is something that we are very passionate about. And then being able to have a strong business model is the piece that has always been missing. Um, so having a strong business model, meaning that we're not just targeting, uh, you know, a Linux kernel on a phone, right? Uh, if we were just targeting that, it would be a, a much harder road to hoe. What we're actually targeting is security and privacy and users' freedom. And so by having those tied to a strong business model, which is that everybody has to buy hardware, and so therefore we sell hardware, and that's how we fund all of our advancements, is that we have a very strong uh, financial model behind it, so therefore we can actually impact the future. Can I just bring up an awkward point then with regards to your strong financial model? How many crowdfunders have you done at this point? Is it three? We've actually done three, and then there was an additional uh, pre-order campaign that we did for a a tablet. Right. And at what point do you think you'll be able to stop doing that, or is is the plan going forward to just keep doing these crowdfunders? Because if you look at a company like Dell or something, they, they wouldn't dream of doing a crowdfunder. That's correct. So uh, the goal originally was was basically mitigating risk. So, um, and it's not an awkward question in, in any way whatsoever. So, the approach for us originally was um, that I put forth the overall business model and the plan. Part of that was initially I didn't want to bring in investment for two reasons. One was because I didn't want investment to undermine my strict beliefs, which of course can happen. Uh, The second piece is that I wanted to remove risk. And a great way to remove risk is taking it to the potential audience, right? So an investor would ask, who's going to buy the, you know, the laptops or the phone? By running a crowdfunding campaign, you prove that there's a market, right? Or you prove that there isn't, depending on if you succeed or not. So I knew that we would be able to prove that there's a market. So that removed a tremendous amount of risk. The second part is that we became a social purposes corporation, which when I first started Purism, I didn't know existed. And then we learned of its, uh, what that means and that, that, and that we would be able to become a social purposes corporation. And really the main point of that is that we have enshrined in our articles of incorporation, which means it's government backed that they cannot change that we have to release all of our source code under free software, that we have to be fighting for users' digital rights, and all of the core beliefs that I have, we can put into the Articles of Incorporation, which means that they can't change. They're immutable. Uh, and so what that allows me to now do is go get outside investment because they cannot undermine those goals. So uh, we've... We've raised a, a small amount of money. Uh, we've actually built Purism almost entirely from revenue. Then uh, we're going to be seeking Series A funding starting probably around April of this year. And at that point in time, then uh, we will not be needing to go uh, you know, do any additional crowdfunding because we'll be able to fund everything from 
uh, our own revenue and investment. So to date, we've built Purism almost entirely from revenue, right? Some of our customers wanted to invest, and so we did put together some terms that allowed them to invest. And right now, we have uh, thousands of computers in inventory that we have uh we have paid for, right? So we have the assets sitting in inventory for shipping laptops. So our strong financial s- stability allows us to not need to go out and continue to do crowdfunding. Uh, that's not to say we wouldn't consider it maybe for another project that we want to prove that there's a market for. But the, you know, we're not going to go, we didn't go after crowdfunding for the second revision of our 13 inch laptop or the third revision of the 13 inch laptop. We just funded those from sales. Okay, and so the big question is, are you definitely going to ship this phone in January 2019? That is the plan. And (laughs) right now, everything is looking uh, as if that is going to occur. So the development kits in June, we, we have plan A, which is shipping the actual development kit that we plan to ship with the phone. Part of that depends a little bit on the supply chain. Uh, so the fallback plan there would be shipping the screen we'd use plus a, you know, 3D printed case plus a, uh, you know, a board that isn't exactly the motherboard. Um, that's sort of plan B for the development kit. But getting that development kit out in, in the month of June is sort of a big boost where we, you know, we have six more months to produce the actual phone. So even if that were to, you know, slip a month or, I mean, I don't think it would slip too, but let's just say if it did, but that still gives us plenty of time if we end up put placing our phone order in the month of August. So everything is looking really good. And on the software side, some of these uh, images, videos that we're going to be coming out with in the course of the next you know couple of weeks and continuing on on a weekly basis is going to really show the advancements that we're making. And that continued communication is really an important, uh, uh, you know, uh, policy that we have uh, to make sure that everybody's aware of our progress. Okay, so that was a roundabout way of saying I hope so that you're not promising anything at this point. Then, well, making a promise is we clearly made a promise by running the campaign, and we're doing everything we can, and everything looks like it's going to be able to be met. There, um, I think that uh, so we we have nothing that we have is a red flag that says we're going to miss that date. And by having constant communication, then we're going to be able to make sure that we continue to alert users, right? Of saying, Hey, this date looks good. This date looks good right now. The date looks good. Um, we made sure we gave us enough time, uh, to be able to advance all the pieces we need to advance. So right now, um, everybody feels comfortable. The, there's a couple of big triggers that are coming up that are going to kind of help us really gauge that. The The first is r- right now it's Chinese New Year. So, of course, our trips to the fabrication uh, we are making in the uh, middle to end of March. So that's where we're going to go on the overall large supply chain tour. After we go on that tour, then it's going to help us pin down a lot of these sort of uh, tolerance question marks around timeline. Uh, so as an example, if we find out the minimum order quantity for the screen we'd like and the lead times, then we can factor that in and we have to look, do we need an alternative or not? So we get to really put all those pieces together and then we're going to uh, compare that to our original timeline and then um, we'll be able to really pin down that date. 
So a lot of variables are going to be answered over the course of the next couple of months. But as it stands right now, everybody on the team is excited and believes that we're going to hit that date. Okay. Well, um, it's been great having you on. And how about this? We're recording this on Valentine's Day. How about uh, we make another date for next Valentine's Day and you can uh, give us an update on how it's going and, uh, and whether or not you've actually shipped it by then. That sounds, uh, that sounds fantastic. I'll put that in my calendar right now. <laughs> great. Yeah, thanks a lot. Right, yeah, fascinating interview there with Todd. And first up, when I start my new company, I'm going to have him as my CEO because that's a guy who can field a question, deal with it, and get a, a, not a positive spin, but like get the good angle on it. That's that's important in, in his position. But it was interesting to hear about um, the enterprise funding that he you know openly talked about with the crowdfunding. Um, and I also think quite a good point made about uh, your challenging question about the number of crowdfunders they've had. Um, and I hadn't really thought about the fact that they've, you know, the the laptops they had crowdfunders for were a couple of years ago now, and they've had other iterations without having to, to go to crowdfunding. So it at least proves that they're financially seem to be quite stable even and are able to get um, enterprise customers involved, which to me seems like a good thing because that means you've got, you know, a solid foundation financially to, to work with. Um, and you, you did push on him the awkward question of guaranteeing that it'll be out in January, 2019, <laughs> which, you know, fair play doing your Paxman and, and, and prodding him. Um, did you threaten to overrule him? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I thought, I, I think he's, he's, you know, they're trying as hard as they can. Clearly they can't promise it'll be out because that is just impossible to do in the situation they're in but you know the fact there's no major red flags on his on his plan on his timeline sounds like it's it's going well it's just it just wait and see as to whether it comes out with gnome or kde which again was a question that i'm, I'm glad you asked because i've i've said on this show it seems odd that they're doing both and they should just go to one and if they're using gnome on the desktop that seems like a logical one uh, and he seemed to have a similar sort of view so at least they've you know seems to have his head screwed on seems to you know, have a lot of uh, ideas and plans. And I was surprised by his massively long-term goal of sort of changing the, the you know, the very fundamentals of computing. But I guess you've got to have these dreamers um, doing the things they're doing. Well, a little peer behind the curtain, dear listener, after we officially finished the uh, recording and pressed stop, we actually ended up talking to him for ages about stuff. And one thing that I really should have managed to get on air was talking about the tablet situation, which a lot of people have pre-ordered. And he said that they've contacted everyone about that and offered them refunds or credit against um, a laptop or whatever, and that it may or may not happen and there were supply problems and that they've really learned from that when it comes to this phone. So we'll have to see what happens with that. But I don't know if I'm less skeptical than I was. He is smooth as fuck. There is no doubt about that. He is a very slick PR man. And he talks a good game. And I think that we need that in the FOSS world, really. He doesn't just talk it in fairness, though. I mean, they, they've produced with the laptops, too, though. So it's not, it's, it's not just talk. We do have to be fair to the guy. I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not just talk, but he is very good at the talking aspect of it. And uh, he's, he, he's a very good marketing man. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I, I, as I said, we really need that in the FOSS world. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I used to say that... Um, Shuttleworth was the the Foss Steve Jobs, but now I'm starting to think that it might be Todd. So uh, I don't know if he'll take that the right way or the wrong way. <laughs> 
That's a terrible comparison, but anyway. (laughs) Um, But before we wrap it up, um, just want to mention DigitalOcean. So we're not sponsored by them, but we do have an affiliate link. Um, We mentioned it ages ago. So if you go to latenightlinux.com slash DigitalOcean, you can get $10 credit to get started. They are a Linux VPS provider. They talk about cloud and loads of words like that. But the bottom line is you can get a Linux machine in a data center or well, virtual machine that you can do anything with. It's completely uh, root access. You can install whatever you want on it. Um, you can get all sorts of distros, even some BSDs and stuff. Um, and if you sign up with this ten dollar credit and then spend another twenty five dollars, we get twenty five dollars credit with them, which means that we can pay for hosting and stuff. Like we're talking to each other on a Mumble server on DigitalOcean right now, so it would help pay for that, for example. So yeah, do go to latenightlinux.com slash DigitalOcean and check them out. So that'll do it for this week then. We'll be back in two weeks when hopefully IQ will be uh, back with us. Who knows what's going to happen or what we're going to talk about. We haven't got a clue. So uh, until then, I've been Joe. I've been Jesse. And I've been Phelan. See you later.